When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Normally, we're a news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading, and we will be next week. But this week, we are doing a episode on Dead Poet Society, which has been a long time coming. Um, not an adaptation that we normally try to keep our movie episodes to because, well, that's it's a books and reading episode. But I, this has to be the most bookish non-adaptation out there. Is there a more bookish non-adaptation than Dead Poets Society? I, I can't think of one. I don't think so. I was thinking about it this morning, and I think if we had to defend this choice, which we don't because it's our podcast, right? <laughs> I would, um, I would say this is the movie that gets the closest to illustrating all the things that we talk about when we talk about why books and reading yeah. are important and powerful in people's lives. And that is a hard thing to do in a book. Like I haven't read very many books. <laughs> like that's a hard thing to do in a novel. You could write a memoir about it. It's a hard thing to do in a novel. It's not as tough of a task to do on screen when you can watch people living their lives and not just sitting around reading books. I think, yes, I go in most bookish non-adaptation movie. And along the same lines, it's also weirdly devoid of actual books and literature. <laughs> I mean, it, there are some, and we can get into that a little bit, but um, the, the the literature here is Robin Williams' performance. Like, that's the text, yes. I think, around mm -hmm. which the, the book is, or excuse me, the movie is revolving and then the consequences thereof. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I did a live blog of this 10 years ago oh for the site. I remember. I think that might have been the last time I watched it. Uh, yeah. And uh, I used to write. I used to be a fun writer. Uh, I miss that guy. Should do more <laughs> of that. You're still fun. Yeah, I know. I'm, well, thank you for saying it. You don't have to. But I was a much younger person then. Um, mm. You know, 10 years is a long time. And I wrote in the live blog then, and I'll link it in the show notes here if people want to check it out. I'm not going to repeat a lot of it, though. I might steal my favorite self-references. Um, <laughs> I might self-plagiarize sure, a little bit. Why not? Um is like, you know, you watch it at different times in your life and you you see it from different perspectives. I think it's true mm -hmm. it's true of all movies, but this one especially has sort of a multi-perspective. There's three main perspectives. There's that of the kids, the students. There's that of the parents, especially um, Kurtwood Smith, Mr. Perry. And then there's Keating's perspective, like the mm -hmm. teacher, the student, and then the parent. And when I first saw this, and I want to, this way of getting us into our own relationship with the book, or the movie. God, I'm going, to, I'm going to do this over and over again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's fine. With the movie, I didn't see it when it first came out in 1989. I was 11 years old. I wasn't watching this then. I'm sure like everyone else, I probably saw it on VHS or on cable when I'm 13, 14, 15. And for people like me, and maybe people who become like me, and maybe you're like this too, your first encounter with this when you are a bookish kid is super powerful. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's wildly powerful. And then when I started teaching um, some years later, you know, basically 10 years later, the teaching, the, you know, Mr. Keating became the central figure, seeing the eyes through Mr. Keating. And now I mm -hmm. see it not through Mr. Perry's, but 
the adult point of view. And I'm now older, I'm sure, than Mr. Keating was at this time. Mr. Keating is probably in his early 30s, and this it's yeah. never mentioned, but he's he's got to be in his early 30s, you would think, or it's presented think, as being a young person, youngish man. Yeah, I think that's right. Robin Williams was 38 when it was filmed, but yeah. I think the character is younger than that, Plays I would younger. say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say early to mid-30s, old enough to have some wisdom, but still young enough to be cool and seem a little dangerous. Yeah, yeah. right. And so now it's it's moved from a kind of aspirational reading experience to a totemic teaching one to a cautionary parental mm-hmm. <laughs> parental one uh, over time. I guess the other thing that struck me about this li- last rewatch is with all the stories we've done of late about book banning and censorship, yeah. it really hits home in a way that it didn't for me ever before. Mm-hmm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, how about you? What's your? Do you remember your first experience? I don't What's remember my of? first. Yeah, this has existed in my like pop culture media consciousness for as long as I can remember. So I think I must have seen it somewhere in that ten to twelve hmm. chunk. I was seven when it came out, so I was not seeing it in nineteen eighty nine. Um, I'm sure that it was the same kind of situation you're describing. Either somebody rented it or it was on cable. I'm sure I watched it like in my living room with my parents who had heard that it was a good movie. You know? mm-hmm. um, but I you know, went through that whole arc of identifying with the kids. In my memory, this is all mushed up with my freshman year in high school. And I had a that's the year that I had my Mr. Keating. His name was yeah. Joe Hunsley. Shouts to him. Shouts. Um, just one of those teachers. You get a handful if you're really lucky mm-hmm. um, who make a lifelong imprint. And I think I had seen it before that, and I recognized something of that, you know, sort of Keating archetype by the time I met Mr. Hunsley, um, and then watched it throughout, you know, many times throughout high school. I'm sure I sat around and watched it on cozy weekends in college, and I didn't realize until I sat down this weekend to watch it. I think it had maybe been since that that last time you live blogged it <laughs> ten years ago that I had watched it because, like, this is great, and it is eminently rewatchable and it's such a touchstone but it's not light it's not like you know it's a saturday afternoon and i'm looking for something to just occupy myself that's when i'm going to go to like clueless or dirty dancing or something like that it's not a it's not a fun good feel kind of rewatch so there's there was more space between it than the last time and in that last 10 years ish like i guess if 10 years ago i would have been in my late 20s i was probably mostly still identifying with the students and Mm -hmm. this time around it was just fully Keating, you know, of like, oh, man, I get it. Like, these are the lectures I give to young yeah. people in my life. You know, wow, that's that's a first. And since I'm not a parent, I haven't had many of those reversals watching movies mm. from the 80s and 90s. Like, I've had the, I don't identify with these kids anymore. This movie is still fun. Or I can identify with the adult perspective here. But a full sort of switch from one POV all the way into occupying another one um, was, was really different and interesting. Bob was walking through the room and I was like oh my god it happened I got old <laughs> mm-hmm. like, like I'm definitely older now as you were saying than Robin Williams's character is here I'm probably older than some of 
the parents, given how old people were when they were having kids? Yeah, I don't know. It's 50s? tough it's... because everyone seems older, right? We've talked about this, <laughs> you and I personally, when we talk about Wonder <laughs> Hammett's talent. It's like, we will never be as old as Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are, and, and they're 32. <laughs> right. that, right? So I'm a good 12 yeah, years old. Yeah, she's going to be 40 are. someday. Someday in eight years. So like... I don't know. And Kurtwood Smith, he's like Ed Harris. I actually think of him as mean Ed Harris. That's him yeah, where he's always been in my forever. brain. He's yeah. always looked old and he plays older. And then all the teachers are old. All the other teachers it's, are older. I mean, I don't know what yeah. their actual ages are, but a lot it's, of gray hairs and scolding, which makes everyone seem older. Yeah, a parade of grumpy old men. We don't get to see many of the moms, but you know, Mrs. Perry has that sort of dowdy 50s housewife yes. thing where like you could tell me she was... 30 or 50, and I believe anywhere in that range. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, nobody looks good in that dress. <laughs> very, very tough to do. And then, then of course, the way of um, the school itself is an imitation of English boarding schools, right? Of, mm-hmm. of their own kind, which have their, they feel old. They're meant to be laden with tradition, uh, laden with ritual, laden with a sort of intellectual and pedagogical conservatism, which makes it feel creaky. And, and mm-hmm. thereby everyone seems older. Like even the even the kids seem a little older than you might think um, because they're trained. They're basically supposed to be young men already. And this idea of adolescence, the one I'm more used to, is still not in effect. The, I said in the live blog, one of the things like it could, what year is it if you watch it and are just sort of not really paying attention to afterwards asked to say what year it is? You could be like, is it 1939? Is it 1989? Mm-hmm. Is it 19? It, it's actually 1959, the hundredth centennial. And it's an interesting time to be. It feels about right where we don't yet have the sexual and political and gender revolutions of the 60s, but they're in the offing. Like Mr. Keating is sort of an, a harbinger, it feels like, of something mm-hmm. like that. So it, it doesn't feel like they're completely like in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village where there's a world out there that has a lot more diff- a different thing. On the other hand, they do feel out of place. And that's one of the things I notice here is how much, you know, even with we, even with mix, Meeks and Pitts, like with their radio on the on the top mm-hmm. of the building, they're like they're in a different universe. And then when Charlie goes to the Danbury's house, it's almost like he doesn't know what he's supposed to do uh, when Neil goes to the play or all these different things where – it's they're in this like academic bubble monastery mm-hmm. universe, and the movie feels that way. I think you know much like much like the um, the academy feels out of time. I think the movie feels out of time. It, it's dated clearly, but I think it holds up. The look and feel doesn't feel dated because it's, it's historical fiction of its own kind. I guess right. even in the I moment agree, of yeah. its making. It's- Right, yeah, it's made in 1989, set in 1959, so it's a period piece in that definition. And other than a few changes to like, there are, well, actually, I think it's probably very true to what was acceptable in 1959. But there are a couple of scenes that even if we were setting a a movie in 1959 now, we probably wouldn't go Mm -hmm. for it because they're just not acceptable or it wouldn't, frankly, wouldn't be worth like, what aggrieved Twitter would have to say about it for the movie Uh, folks to put it in there. This, you know, one of the students gets paddled as a form of punishment, true to the time. Mm -hmm. But I I still think if we were making this today set in the past, we would leave that out. Keating, you know, touches the students. There's a little, you know, like really pushing Todd's character uh, played by Ethan Hawke at some points. And that would read, I think today as a bullying thing where it's, uh, you know, in 1989, and in the 1959 storyline, it's like he's engaged and he's pushing him and he 
it's tough love. And mm-hmm. our perspective on that has really changed. But I felt the same sort of like hovering, just about to break in presence of like beat poetry and yeah. the, the idea of like individual liberation coming out of the culture of just like obligation and duty. And especially that these this is a, an all boys school, mm-hmm. this duty to just like grow up and become a responsible man who what's the, the line that one of the teachers says to Keating is like unfettered by foolish dreams or something like that and um, like set it all aside just like do your duty get a good job you have these opportunities that we never had before and that's the pressure that's the expectation live into it and like 10 years later by 1969 this is all on its head mm-hmm. yeah and in in hindsight i don't think i thought of it in this way at the time but the central tension if you if you really abstract it is between conformity and personal freedom like that's mm-hmm. that's what the the central tension here. Conformity is presented in a lot of different ways, but the structural one is you've got to do something other than what you would choose for yourself, and even that yes. that's a choice to be made, right? It's not like they start, they come to well um, to the school in their early scenes. It's interesting we get some scenes of them, and this is something I noticed this next time before they encounter Keating, just talking amongst themselves, and they mm-hmm. have their own kind of rebellion. They have their own kind of bristle. They're they're not all drinking the Kool Aid, right? But at least amongst themselves, but they're kind of getting through it. So they're already primed to question. You know, they have their own names and rituals and mm-hmm. little sayings, and um, but the, it's not organized, and it's certainly not um, pointed towards, which you have to say is a sort of kind of mini-revolution amongst the students that yeah. become acolytes of Keating. Yeah, I think a school like that is intended to take these young boys at this time in their life and and tamp down the foolish dreams, the desire to be different and teach them to conform and try to get them to drink the Kool-Aid of, of this is what matters. Like this is the thing you do and it's important and you, so you do it, you know, like just mm-hmm. do it. This is just the way that we do things is that we conform, you read these books, you understand poetry this one way, you go get the, this particular type of job and then you can live in a house like the Danbury's live in and send your own <laughs> children here to be, you know, to be mm-hmm. legacy students and Keating introduces to them the op- uh, the alternate option or that th- just even the idea that there is another yeah. option like that you don't have to be resigned to this one way of life that your parents and your teachers heretofore have told you is the way you can you can decide what's important to you you can decide what is meaningful to you like it's in that first scene when they meet Keating and he takes them to look at the photos of the past students and he does the whole like carpe DM We're thing. food like, for worms, boys. Oh, oh man, so good. <laughs> and then he tells them, "Make your lives extraordinary." Mm-hmm. You know, this those are the kinds of schools that, like, their, their brochures are filled with language about we will create extraordinary students or making extraordinary young men or whatever, whatever. But this is about changing the definition of what extraordinary is and actually looking into yourself for what is like what is the verse that I'm going to write to borrow from the you know Whitman <laughs> that. Keating borrows from what is what is the thing that I want and it's the introduction of validating that question I think that opens up the rest of the conversations they have that opens up their relationships like everything else is filtered through that and we get to watch these like half a dozen boys each refract the lesson a different way yeah and they 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 take the revolutions you know so these personal revolutions it gets fractured 
and each of them take on a characteristic. It reminds me a little bit of what Dostoevsky does in Crime and Punishment, where he gives us several characters. They're kind of version, different ways of interpreting kind of a similar idea. They're very different versions, like Razumikin and Raskolnikov mm-hmm. um, are all kind of versions of the same kind of idea or character exploring in different ways. You know, well, we have a sexual awakening in the form of, you know, uh, Knox, <laughs> um, a political <laughs> one. Like, Tawan is like a political kind of, that, that's, it's it's God. We they think we should have girls. Like, that's a political <laughs> act, right? Kind of yeah. a, a stunt political. Um, Robert Sean Leonard, and I'm going to refer to them as their actor's name, because now I'm old enough that I think of them as the actors, at least the leads. Yeah. With Ethan Hawke and Robert Sean Leonard, they have sort of a similar one where Ethan Hawke's is an aesthetic one, mm-hmm. an individual revolution, stepping outside of his brother's shadow and that he has value of and in himself. And then Robert Sean Leonard's is an artistic one and, and what that signifies. So each one of them are playing out a mini arc that is, is somewhat similar now to much different ends and, and much different stages. But these are the ways that breaking the tyranny of expectation and conformity and um, goodness as presented by the school and the teachers can break in all of these different ways. Mm-hmm. Like it, all the whole thing is subject to the breaking of the mold. And these are the ways that it spills out to, to different kinds of effects, right? And we don't know, we don't know what, like, I don't know, uh, Knox's folks would think of him dating a girl at, at this right. point. Like, it's, it's not mm-hmm. presented, but Kurtwood Smith and the Perrys, this, this idea that if he becomes an actor, everything we've built our lives to do will fall apart. They recognize that their way of life is at stake. Everything mm-hmm. they want is at stake, and the power of... It just happens to be Shakespeare. It could be playing the flute or cello or being a painter of anything like that. It actually matters less that it's um, the theater or, or, or language. It's like this is a different, it's a swerve, and they can't, they can't handle the swerve. And so afraid of, I guess I'm not even sure. This is something that I've never really understood myself. I understood in a, in a similar, but I've never really grokked. The fear of being, I guess, just middle class like, because what yeah. happens here, right? If he plays, Neil becomes an actor, and maybe he makes it, maybe he doesn't. But worst case scenario, he like becomes a middle school theater teacher, and that's what they're so afraid of. Like, what yeah, are they actually think, afraid of? I think it's deeper than that. I think it comes out. The the characters can only articulate it as far yeah, as everything that we've tried to set you up for will be gone. When like you're right, he could become a high school theater teacher and have a perfectly fine life mm-hmm. you know many people do that and are happy i think it's more the the feeling of like fear of rejection and the idea that your child making yeah. a different choice having different values than you have is somehow a referendum on your own choices and values or that they think you should call all of yours into question and of course when you're like 16 17 and you're first encountering these ideas there is no zealot like the convert you That's know right. and and the conversations that we have with our parents about these kinds of th- conflicts are not nuanced i think at, at that age or very unlikely to be nuanced there probably is a lot of if you can even have the conversation a lot of like vocal verbal rejection of i don't want to be the way mm-hmm. that you want to be and that doesn't feel good but even just implicitly i think that's really destabilizing for people um as a 
just example from my own life, like as a person who doesn't want kids and has known that mm. I don't want them, there have been times where I've seen that dynamic play out where like, I, I love kids and I'm really happy for anybody who wants them to have them, you know, mm. and have a, a rich, wonderful life with their children. But I've had interactions that have made it really clear to me that like, just by saying that's not the choice I'm making for my life, the person on the other end of it is what they're hearing is, I think you made the wrong choice. Mm. And that's really painful, especially if I would think coming from your own kids and and they're refracting the lesson from Keating with such different levels of, I don't know, readiness and skill. Like Charlie is clearly super ready. Gail Hansen's character. He's ready for this. He's going to become Nawanda. He's going to take on that political identity and he's going to exercise his right not to walk during (laughs) the walking conformity thing. But then Todd is like really, really scared of what he's being asked to do. And the, stakes feel really high and Robert Sean Leonard I think can see that this is the right thing for him like this is the this is the sermon that he has been needing to hear and finally the pastor showed up and gave it that day at church and and it's that's also terrifying in its own way trying to rise yourself to the occasion and then Knox is like eager and excited but like has no skill about how to go (laughs) about it and that spectrum felt really it felt very real to me as well for how they take this and what they do with trying to internalize the lesson or make sense of the ideas and then figure out what that looks like to express them back outwards. And, you know, another thing I meant kind of related, it's not just that Mr. Perry is so worried about Neil. Keating's mini revolution represents an existential threat to the school because what Mm -hmm. the job they are hired to do is to get kids into Harvard, Yale, and become doctors, bankers, or lawyers, right? right. And if if that job is brought into question, um, if that's destabilized, then the whole thing falls apart. Their purpose is to produce investment bankers, or mm-hmm. doctors, or lawyers, or diplomats. And if this fissure is allowed to crack and widen, and we see examples of, yeah, we spent all this money to send our, our, our boy, our one son, to Welton, and he turned out to be a, a hippie or a theater nerd, <laughs> you know, then yeah. kids aren't going to, they're not going to send their kids there. So it, ha- it does have to close ranks. So even within whatever, you know, the, the big hegemony of society, and we all are subject to it in many different ways, this is a crucible of hegemony. It's like, it's, it's mm-hmm. the, it's, it's the, <laughs> the white hot center of hegemony, and it has to reinforce itself or it all breaks apart. It's so interesting to see the public school, right? Yeah. And the same thing. It's so fascinating to see. It's like if Neil had just gone to middle school or public school, his parents' financial pressure would be less. You know, he'd mm-hmm. see that there's there's such a dynamism. Even in those few moments we get in the school, I was like, oh, I love public school. I mean, it has <laughs> all that its flaws, but I was like, public school's great. I mean, it, it's the, the the worst thing except for all the others, but like, it is so interesting to see I just hadn't really noticed before how manufactured and manicured and policed the whole situation really is. I think that is something that has shifted in this kind of education since 1959. I think thanks thanks in large part to what happened in the 60s and 70s in our Mm -hmm. culture. Like liberal arts education is not scary anymore. The idea of raising people, especially after Silicon Valley did what Mm -hmm. it did and like Mm -hmm. think different became the biggest payout, you know, that like we've ever heard of. Um, 
that the idea of teaching people how to think, not what to think, education has really shifted in that direction. But this is where it's starting and or where it's like really starting to gain speed. And it, it looks like it's very threatening for these parents. I had a note from like, you can also show this movie as like, this is about how wasps develop anxiety disorders. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a long and storied tradition of people being terrified of their parents because they think that they're going to disappoint them and not live up to their expectations. And this illustrates that culture in in a very tight nutshell. I mean, we haven't I'm not sure how we're going to proceed. We don't have notes. We're, we're kind of going off the yeah. cuff a little bit. What mm-hmm. else struck you? What else do we want to make sure we mention? We have to talk about Keating. I'm not even sure how to talk about <laughs> Keating anymore because it's hard to separate from Williams. Um, mm-hmm. I was reading in the live blog how much the color palette reminds me of Goodwill Hunting. And oh, yeah. Williams playing playing a very similar kind of character. Um, darker and older in Goodwill Hunting, but a bruised soulfulness comes through in each point and how remarkable i mean every time i watch this i'm, I'm just like williams is unbelievable <sighs> top of his game couldn't be better and in williams when he has to lop off the the real manic stuff like we get you know we get what he, you want a little bit of him doing shakespeare as john wayne like that's just fun and it's him <laughs> bonding with the characters and i think that's even a trick like i didn't do impressions myself but to have fun with my students in that kind mm-hmm. of way, to make to make fun of it, to make light of it, to see things from a different way. I think that's something I directly took from it's okay to make fun of the Iliad a little bit. It's it's weird, it's different, and it's it's wild and nuts that everyone gets killed through their nipple because I guess the armor was bad around your nipple. <laughs> right. And so we would just we'd always make fun. It's like, boy, they really need to work on their nipple armor. And it's like that stuff would become a joke. But it didn't make a joke of the whole enterprise. It meant that you could approach the subject matter with your full humanity, right? It could be fun and it could be sad and it could be confusing and dangerous and uplifting all at once. And that that sort of Pandora's box of experience is mm-hmm. what Robbins is really good at. If you look at the if you use this thing and look at this thing in this one way, it can take you places that are wild and unruly. It just all and all you have to do is open yourself up to it. And we get them, we get them together in the cave trying to figure out how to take it seriously and finally finding some way to engage with it that's fun and liberating and the text is just there for you all it mm-hmm. all that it takes is a certain kind of attitude towards it and he's demonstrating for them over and over again ways of being in relationship to arts or an idea or an ex- aesthetic experience that gives you something that you didn't have before and that it's untamable i think that's what's so amazing here about literature especially it's like the if it's on the paper it cannot be tamed it just can't. It just it just so resists being tamed that it, it spills yeah. out into the world. Yeah. One of the boys uses the phrase, like, we're supposed to be stirred up by things. This yeah. whole thing we're doing here is for the purpose of stirring ourselves stirring and each other up, up. Yeah. which I just I loved. And I think you're right. This is my favorite Robin Williams performance. Seeing him so restrained and just like letting out the tricks at the right moments is such a smart choice for the character, but also just for what it does here. Like there's so much he's holding so much behind his eyes. <laughs> he's holding yeah. so much in his body. And like we can, I think, sense that there's just so much more going on with Keating than he's 
letting mm-hmm. out to these guys. But there's this dance between them where like he's encouraging and challenging them to have this this kind of openness around their ideas, but also a kind of openness and vulnerability with each other that yeah. will connect them to themselves and it will connect them to each other. But it's scary. It's really scary to be open in that way. It is scary to make art and share it with other people. This is really antithetical to the kind of masculinity that mm. these boys' parents are encouraging, that their fathers are modeling like Kurtwood Smith is not sitting around Mr. Perry is not sitting around like reading poetry with his dudes it's <laughs> no. not happening and that it that that all of that comes together and he's the he's a great model for it like you're looking at Keating thinking okay well if the way I get to be like him is I've got to talk about some of my stuff i've got to like (laughs) share some poetry and be open to these things take the risks do the scary thing all right like if that's the path to getting to be like that guy who is so different from this like phalanx of crotchety old dudes that might as well just be those two muppet guys that are up in the balcony all (laughs) the time it's just like it's like 15 replicants of them Mm -hmm. in their teachers it's so inspiring and he, he gives them the roadmap, you know, he doesn't tell them what each of their definitions of extraordinary needs to be, but he's giving, he gives them the tools, you know, it's like, it's in here, you know, you're going to, these poets, these writers will ask you the questions and in the Rilke sense of like, and then if you live with the question enough, your answer is going to come up. And if you're brave enough to follow it, you can be the version of me that exists in theater or whatever else, you know, Todd's going to go on to do in uh, what Knox might become. You can be the Mr. Keating of your own circle. Here's the way to do it. Be open to all this stuff. And it's that openness that's just so opposite from everything they've had before Mm -hmm. and so new to them. And I love the, the little moments that play out through the movie that show us that that's happening. You know, like it's, I think it's great that we don't spend that much time in the cave watching them do the paintings. We get to see the meetings. We get to see their progression into like actually taking this seriously. And Charlie has that poem about like, got to do more, got to be more. And it's like, right, you've heard that a million times, Mm -hmm. haven't you? (laughs) But I think the desk set scene where if I were to ever buy a desk set twice, it would definitely be this. (laughs) I love that one. one. So good. And like Todd and Neil just have this tender moment yeah. that I I don't think they would have just ignored each other in a moment like that, absent of Keating's influence, but the way it plays out, I think we're supposed to read and it does read as they can talk about this with each other. Like Todd can say it to Neil and Neil can mm-hmm. show up for it because of the things that are opening up in themselves because of what Keating is teaching them. Yeah, and this the the movie's a tragedy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the irony of I think the cultural place it has in the actual text of the movie are, are, are somewhat dissonant, right? This is Keating. This is an inspiring story, mm-hmm. but it ends with Neil um, committing suicide, Keating being fired, and the boys, at least some of them, you know, basically signing on the line, which is dotted, returning yep. into the fold. And as a message, it's hard to know. And then we get the button, right, which is, does a lot of work. And I've always wondered about where Keating goes back and they stand on the desks. Mm-hmm. The idea here is that the, the, the story has not been lost. The verses have been heard and memorized and, and are ready for recitation at other times in their lives. But it's a fascinating 
there's there's a fascinating collision of the boy's youthful exuberance and passion in Keating's realpolitik that that struck me this time because he says to Neil, "You you just have to wait, man. You know, I mm-hmm. know you, this. It'll be over sooner." And Neil's like, "But with medical school, it's like eight years." Which, when you're 16 or 17, like I think he's, it, feel, it is, it's your whole conscious life doubled over again. But he, they, he can't quite hear it, right? And, and I don't know if there's a lesson that Keating learns that he is playing, was not playing, he is imparting something potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. Destabilization is dangerous. And we don't know what his earlier teaching experience is. He doesn't tell us why he came back to the school. I think he wants to pass on the good word, right? And yeah. there's a naivety in himself that he can, without real consequence, change these boys' lives. And that's a really naive place to be. And that's that's one thing that struck me as I watched as a teacher. It's like, mm. he's right, but he didn't, he doesn't understand. And again, it's fiction. So how this plays out in the real world is a completely different matter. But at least within the context of the story, he is not, a master of the system as he's presented at the beginning. He's presented as sort of this trickster figure, right? Who can rip rip the book out, rip rip the page of the book, impart the lessons of wildness, um, of barbaric yops, of the the Whitmonian resistance to any conformity. You can be anything and everything simultaneously, but also you can graduate and stay Mm -hmm. in school. And that's not a tension really wrestled with until too late for Keating. He doesn't really understand how discordant his message is. And I wonder if like, you know, one of the, one of these great questions, like what does Mr. Keating do next? Does he become like Gene Hackman in Hoosiers where he's like in this small town <laughs> teaching public school and he's chastened by the lessons yeah. and, he, and he modulates. So something else happens. I, I'm not really sure what the lesson of the movie is. There a, is there a moral to this story? And I've, I've wrestled with it for as long yeah, as I can remember really wrestling with it. It's such a good question because I feel like it's a cautionary tale, not just about parenting, which it certainly is. Like this is very, especially for the time in which it was made and the time it's depicting, it's very pointedly about don't try to stuff your kids into boxes Mm -hmm. (laughs) for, you know, lack of a more elegant way of saying that. But it's a cautionary tale. Neil is the cautionary tale to the boys. You know, if you cannot find a way to like fight for the thing that you know is what makes you alive you may go this way as well mm. um, and you may become that kind of parent like it's it's a couple like nested warnings about replicating this stuff and i do think it's a cautionary tale for keating like what is keating's memoir like 30 yeah. years later <laughs> when he reflects on this of like yes i was i was giving them these ideas that are powerful and dangerous and giving young people space to question and space to take risks is inherently risky and i i think you're right that he does not realize the amount of risk and danger that he's really opening these kids Mm-hmm. up to um, by showing them that there's a different way and then encouraging it without full like robust knowledge of how their parents are going to be or how scary it might be like that scene when neil goes to keating and lies oh, to him God. 
saying that he's t- oh man i'm gonna get choked up yeah. <laughs> that, he's, yeah. that, that he's that he talked to his dad and his dad doesn't like it but like he's gonna let him finish the play mm-hmm. and you can just see it on williams's face that keating knows neil is lying and and like neil feels like he has to lie because there's yeah. all this pressure now like the pressure has not shifted from satisfy your parents to satisfy keating but now neil's trying to figure out how to satisfy both and that's the tricky thing about being that age and in that environment especially in a boarding school is you're still trying to please the authority figure and now the way to please the authority figure is to like step outside of the traditional script and that's that just carries big big consequences Mm. and i think I think slash hope, you know, in our imagined what does Keating do next, that there would have to be some recognition of like, how can I offer these ideas yeah. in a way that that is that truly gives them freedom to engage with it rather than just sets up the expectation that now you conform to my expectation of nonconformity. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I mean, they don't have the agency that comes along with sort of an artistic idea of like the Whitmonian freedom that is it it's not really talked about here but this is like the central chaotic passionate ro- lowercase romantic Whitman's not a high romantic like Wordsworth or Coleridge or something else like that mm-hmm. that also requires a certain amount of agency right and it's been talked about in terms of racial and gender studies ever since that like this sort of kind of artistic freedom is subject to all kind it's subject to the world right no everyone is subject to the world um, and he doesn't he doesn't actually talk about how he himself has found a way, at least at this moment, to negotiate mm-hmm. being in society, as he understands it, and holding space for himself. Because he is a teacher here, right? He has figured out a way to sound his barbaric yop in the classroom and have a gig and yeah. put food on the table and not be ostracized or subject to. Like, you could, you know, you can always throw your body again into the machine and really hazard yourself. But that's not really what he's suggesting. He's not suggesting that kind of liberation. He's suggesting an internal one, right? A, mm-hmm. a, a con- a, the formation of a critical and artistic consciousness, not necessarily a critical, artistic, and political being right. that you know will march or die or otherwise do something like this. It is, it is much more of a middle road than the boys understand it. And I think most of the people watching the movie don't really, I certainly didn't connect with, look at what yeah. Keating has figured out for himself. He's a high school English teacher who gets to talk about poetry, but also be, you know, a, a respected member of society. Look at that little, that's, some, that's both um, beat and realpolitik at the same time. That's what he's <laughs> right. negotiated for himself. And when you're that young, it, you just, I mean, literally their frontal lobes are not, like, I, the frontal cortex just, is not fully not, formed. You're right. They're just not prepared in so many ways. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're just that. not baked enough and you don't have enough life experience to really know what this means like you know Mm -hmm. they're quoting the thoreau not when i had come to die discover that i had not lived it rings a mary oliver bell for me of like are you breathing just a little and calling it a life and those are the kinds of things that make really great yearbook quotes (laughs) when you're 18 or like in our childhoods aol away messages or something Mm -hmm. like it's it's a really inspiring and aspirational idea when you're that age of like, I don't want to be a person who gets to the end of my life and discovers that I have not lived, but you don't have any experience being an adult in the world to know that there are ways to navigate, you know, being fully awake and fully alive inside of institutions that look like 
they would make it impossible or inside yeah. of, you know, very traditional or conservative life choices that would make it look impossible. And Keating doesn't hang a lantern on it for them, as you're saying, of like, look how I've been able to do this. None of them are like seeking a nuanced expression of it mm-hmm. at all. And I think that's both a feature and a bug. Like, as you know, a, a person about to be 40 and having watched this for the first time, re- really relating to it as the Keating adult character, I think you can't. You just cannot understand that until you have been a grown person who has. But you both have to meet the responsibilities of like, you know, paying your bills Mm -hmm. (laughs) and taking care of the people that you've committed to take care of in your life. And that requires participation and conformity to some institutions and some cultural expectations. And there are lots of little ways that you can still express yourself and assert yourself and find artistic expression and freedom inside of that life. But it takes living in it and being able to poke at the edges rather than just a a full rejection of all of it. You know, people do, you can reject all of it, but that's not what Keating's advocating for. And it's certainly not what he's giving them a model to do. And by, by being here, he is in some tacit way endorsing the project, right? Like he's not Mm -hmm. there to, he's not there to upset the, the system. He's not, that's not, he, he very much wants to stay there and be, of service to the boys. Um, so he's not a revolutionary in that regard either. Like it, this is not, I don't know what, what are, what's the, the white savior one, uh, dangerous minds, oh, not, yeah, not yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer or something going in to be like making a political statement about justice or, you know, whatever else it might be. He's within the system and he doesn't communicate it and the boys don't see it. Um, mm-hmm. he, he seems impossible to them to some degree. And Neil would rather, at least according to the movie, and there's all kinds of triggers about suicide. And I, my own experience of doing some crisis counseling and everyone who knows about mm. this is an unusual kind of suicide. Let's put it that way. Um, this is not how the typical thing that you might see here. But for the purposes of the book, Neil sees two options. Right. He either becomes his dad or he dies. And he'd rather die than become his dad. I mean, I think that's the, the central indictment because Kurtwood Smith and the casting is so on the nose with him. Like he's not reading poetry at night in his desk in there. Like you don't, he doesn't seem to have any joy, any joie de vivre, any elevation or excitation or passion for anything other than, than spore like replicating or not even replicating. Cause he's not a member of the class. He wants his son to aspire to. These are social strivers and it's often the striver who is mostly uh, most um, adherent to the stricture, the, at least the public strictures and demands of the upper intellectual, aesthetic, and and um, affirmed classes, right? So yeah, it's- he doesn't see that there's any way through it, um, and it's that's the tragedy, right? And for me, the moment I see now is Kurtwood Smith, uh, Mr. Perry, at one point asked, "Just tell me what you feel," mm-hmm. and Neil can't do it. He just is incapable of saying he he doesn't even know what his own truth is maybe necessarily or he cannot say to his dad my biggest fear is ending up like you he can't i mean he can't say it to his dad because there is a it's not as as i've gotten older kurtwood smith's character is not as closed off as my first i mean i don't know how actual it was but he does just tell me what you feel Mm -hmm. and his grief for him i mean is performed as very genuine right he he is destitute this isn't a he he's he cares but he doesn't know how to do it he he has his own reasons and he's closed off and 
I know these kinds of people. I, I, I'm sorry to say, um, but it's not completely. He's not a cyborg. He doesn't know how to. Re, but he does. How do you feel? And Neil can't respond. And to me, that's the. That's the break. That's the abyss. Yeah. That that's where the whole thing falls apart. Um, and I'm still not sure what that is really about for the purposes of the movie. Like it, oh, that's not about poetry. That's not about. Yeah, fathers and sons, man. It's in my live blog, and I say it over <laughs> yeah. and over again. Is like he can't, just like Neil can't tell Mister Keating the truth. He he is so afraid of telling the truth to, telling people what they don't want to hear, um, mm-hmm. that he can't exist according to the movie, um, and as opposed to other people who never really have to do that. None of the other boys have a moment of reckoning with a parent, mm-hmm. where you know Gail has to. You don't see Gail uh, Gail Hansen who plays Charlie Dalton. Explain to his folks why he, you know, put a red lightning bolt on his chest. You don't, you don't see Knox talk about getting kicked out, you know, getting beat up. You know, you just don't ever see these. So the, the the real the real place where the hammer and the rock meet are in that moment when Kurtman says, "Like, tell me what you feel," and the boy can't do it. And you know that even if Neil told them, he wouldn't have changed it. Because I think that's the other yeah, thing about Neil. I mean, Neil knows that if I say, "Dad, if I can't do this, I'm." I, I don't know how I'm going to go on. His dad still can't hear it. So they're trying to talk, but they know the other one can't hear it. And it's just so impossible. Um, anyway, that, that's, that's yeah, where I, I find myself really finding the, the fulcrum of the movie mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah, I think it's it's impossible because it's too late. You know, late. Mr. Perry is realizing this is the question to ask in this moment. Just tell me what yeah. you feel. But I can't imagine that anything in Neil's no. 16 or 17 years of past experience has told him that that is a safe or wise thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, to actually tell the truth in this moment or that it will be met with any kind of understanding or support. And Mr. Perry is just this, I think the illustration in for the movie's purposes of the lie at the heart of the thing that other teacher says to Keating in the uh, dining room or the thing about show me a man unfettered by, I think it's unfettered by foolish dreams and I'll show you a happy man. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly not the case. Like Mr. Perry has done everything he can to be unfettered by this kind of dream. He's holding some expectations for his child and you could maybe, maybe he would express this desire for Neil to become a doctor and move up into the next social class as a dream for him. But this is not a man who has personal dreams or is engaging with his inner life in some way that, that needs to be expressed. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly very unhappy. And I think Neil has now, seen the alternative like that there is another way to live and that it looks like he cannot do he can't have that he can't tell his father that's actually what he wants um and he's he's kind of told his father that's what he wants by just doing the thing you know like he's expressed (laughs) plenty by forging the letter and acting in the play and even you know asking his dad what did you think and and that hopefulness on his face just kills me when his dad walks up and he has this like glimmer of there's just this glimmer of hope in his eyes that like maybe this is going to be okay maybe now he gets it and you just watch his face fall when he sees that his father is not on board like that's it's a fulcrum moment and it also can't go 
any other way. Like, and this is, you know, if we were using the language about it now, I think if the movie came out now, reviewers would probably talk about like breaking generational patterns or generational yeah. trauma. Like certainly Mr. Perry didn't grow up with people who told him that his job as a person was to find what makes him feel fully alive and figure out a way to both meet the obligations that an adult human has and express <laughs> that fully alive part of himself. He's just doing what he thinks you're supposed to do, what you have to do. And he I think he's very scared of yes. the life that he what he thinks will be the consequences for Neil if Neil makes a different choice. They're just they're looking through completely different lenses on the world and there there's just no way for Neil to do anything other than say it. Like if if he says, I want to be an actor, the scene we get after that is gut-wrenching, I think, mm -hmm. and probably mm -hmm. still results in Neil's decision to yeah. take his life. He still goes to the military academy. If, if mm -hmm. Neil says, you know, Dad, the truth is I'm in a place right... I mean, I don't know. He doesn't have the language to do this, but like I'm right. in a place right now where I've really been thinking about killing myself. If I go to this academy, what does his dad say? Don't be such a wuss. Mm -hmm. You'll get over mm -hmm. it. Think of what your mother yeah. and I have sacrificed. I can't believe right. you would... Right. There's, there's no... Even though he says, tell me what you feel, Neil doesn't believe him that there's enough yeah, trust there to really be. It. He, can't, he, he, can't, he can't really hear it. Um, let's see. Other things? Where else do you want to go? What struck mm. you on the most recent uh, rewatch? A couple of things. So I guess while we're on, the, if they were making this movie today with modern sensibilities, even said at the same time, you know, where it's all these white kids, yeah. I think... Um, the one, the one. I, I don't mean to laugh. It's just so hard to watch <laughs> now, of um, the unconsented kiss uh, in the yeah. party. Um, oh yeah, I yeah, think you Knox's could do that Carpe differently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's just it's a simple change where he's like brushing hair out of her eyes, and her bo drunk boyfriend thinks he's trying to kiss her. Like he's not. He doesn't sure. actually have to do it because the thing that matters in that moment is that they get into a fight. And so mm -hmm. that that's a simple one that you can get rid of in our modern yeah. sensibilities like that. Preferably she's conscious little. while this is yeah. happening. <laughs> or or that she's passed out and he's actually taking care of her, like holding her hair right. maybe over right. the sink or, you know, where he's actually doing something. And it's misconstrued because it's the misconstrue. Well, not it's not even misconstruing. He's construed it correctly, but it's the boyfriend's rage mm -hmm. that become the, the plot device there. Yeah. A fun thing I learned on the Internet this morning is that the boyfriend, Chet, is played by John Irving's son. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Did you see that Laura Finn Boyle was playing um, her sister, but was cut? Her scenes were deleted. Mm -hmm. That's a weird one. Too. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to do too much of that today. Um, full adaptations, but there's a lot of interesting stuff around there. You know, the thing that you know, another moment. Um, all the all the boys are so good in the part. Mm -hmm. It's it's a little hard to see the standout because they have such different work to do. The one that always gets me is that when Neil dies and Ethan Hawke has his oh. moment crying in the snow. And oh. I didn't remember because I, I watched, I tried not to pre preload my reactions mm -hmm. by reading my own notes beforehand, <laughs> but it struck me again, like that blubbery, barfy, snotty, unbelievable stuff from Hawk um, mm -hmm. in this moment. I think he's really good. Robert Sean Leonard, I thought was going to be, yeah. um, he's so unbelievable in this. And he, he seems older and wiser and younger and my, more naive at the same time. Um, he's he's really the standout too. Josh Charles for a long time he kind of disappeared in my consciousness, then came back in some shows of late, and I think he's become, mm -hmm. and later in life, uh, a bit of a middle aged heartthrob um, yeah. to some folks. I think <laughs> Meeks and Pitts, 
I are, I love that little the, that great. little dude. They're mm-hmm. so good. Um, whatever happened to Gail Hansen, Charlie Dalton? He's so magnetic yeah, in this. I I don't he, I don't I didn't even look. Do you look on IMDb? Like what's I he didn't done? I didn't look for him. He rang such like Kieran Culkin bells for me yeah. that I was thinking if you, I mean Kieran Culkin is too old now, but if you had done this movie in like the early two thousands and you wanted that same like magnetic kind of feral vibe, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I d- I think he's just like a maybe a creative executive or something i did like a light google but i don't think he yeah. has a an, an acting career which is a real shame he's wonderful he's really wonderful yeah i'm looking at it now it looks like he's a studio executive for at least up until 10 years ago safe house tower heist the change up cowboys yeah. and aliens and he, that was not, he was like in his late 20s when this was filmed yeah uh, yeah, quite a bit older and feels yeah. quite a bit older mm-hmm. um let's talk for a moment about the actual representation of literature in this um i love i love um the ripping out the books and my favorite i I was giving cameron a hard time last time for his red hair crew cut but my actual favorite character detail is him using the ruler to exactly rip out the book i was like like, that's got narc written all over it yeah way to miss the point cameron (laughs) yeah an interesting character to, to to watch right where he kind of, he's the son Kurtwood Smith wishes he had. Like he kind of believes in the system and wants to be lauded mm-hmm. and join the, the Columbia Club and go to do the other things down the road. So I think that's something that struck me and I didn't really see it at the time is that this desire for personal freedom is not universally distributed, right? Some people yeah. want to be a part of the the mainstream, the the, the normal, the conventional. There's nothing really wrong with that necessarily, Accept that to the degree to which the conventional subjugates those who don't wish to be a part of it, right? It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. fine to be regular. It's the imposition and the policing of regularity um, that becomes dehumanizing in, in a very basic way where you are just a piece, just a part, um, yeah. and not someone in yourself. It's- yeah, I read Roger Ebert's original review mm. of this, and like, it's a tough look for... <laughs> Roger. <laughs> What's he say? What, what's his beef? He gives it two stars. His beef is that uh, he says something like uh, that it substitutes in quoting of these, you know, poetic platitudes in lieu of like actual engagement with art. Like, I think he thinks that there should be more uh, close reading. Of, yeah. Doing of poetry <laughs> on screen because that's just really engaging. Yeah. Uh, and then that the boys are self-consciously bohemian which i think is the point like that's yes teenage like that's teenage life you if you can discover a little rebellion and you yeah. haven't seen other examples of it that's being self-consciously bohemian if you're into art when you're a teenager like that is that, that's the way there's no way of doing it that's not self-conscious at that point it's so effortful because they're so new at it like all you can it's kind of like when you start to like to try to write most Mm. of us start off by 
trying to imitate the writers that we like in some way or you you know you listen to musicians talk about their earliest influences and how their first songs sounded like their biggest influences before you find your own voice and we're watching the boys do this they discover art and poetry in this way for the first time and all you can really do in that first level of engagement with it is sort of parrot the lessons while you're trying to figure out how to run them through your own filter and and what it might look like there's just no way of doing this that's not self-conscious there's no way of being 16, really, that's not self-conscious in some fashion. I was like, come right. on, Roger. Yeah, I know. That, that's that's asking. And I, I think I really appreciate that the poetry is presented as itself, as being sort of mm-hmm. self-evidently powerful, that you don't need to understand. Yeah, really, any, It's a close reading. It's, it's a performance-based, which makes it so wonderful. Williams, who's a great performer and great speaker of language. But then also it, you can get the poetry in the air and just the idea that and, it's so powerful, you don't even have to study it. That's and, inca- yeah, it's, and it's intoxicating. I think it's really true to how we hold on to and engage the pieces of literature yeah, right. that do change our lives. You know, like it's it's a couple lines or it's a scene or it's an idea that somebody articulates and you hold on to those little things like i'm i'm gonna drop you a mary oliver quote you're mm-hmm. gonna quote something from the iliad that you've been thinking about for the mm-hmm. last 30 years <laughs> you know like this is this is who we are and this is what that looks like when it's first getting encoded like it's between the lines that they are reading poetry in class like it's not i don't think every day is you know kicking a soccer ball while shouting a poetry quote presumably keating is actually taking them through some of these things and they're engaging with that work and that's not super interesting to put on screen and so i'm glad they didn't do it (laughs) like i'm sorry roger ebert but the like the quoting of the the sticky pieces of it the quoting of suck the marrow out of life Mm -hmm. like you could do a lot worse than learn that line when you're 16 and hold it in your heart for the next 60 years you know <laughs> it's true and it does speak to the modern moment where censorship and book banning is as rampant as it's ever been in my life um that the, the weird tension we ask of english class in america um mm-hmm. it's it's not a mistake that this is not a chemistry class just for example or a physics class right. or something like this that there is the the bubbling possibility of resistance in most literature, frankly, especially the kinds that the people who sign up to be a lifetime literature teacher want to teach. And that's where a lot of this happens. Like Mm -hmm. not everyone's Mr. Keating, but people who end up teaching literature usually have some affinity for it. And that affinity is not the maintenance performance and um, edification of the status quo necessarily. I think that part to me is, enduring is how it makes you feel is powerful but what is it supposed to do in this function like what is the goal of their english instruction in this it's to tick a box so they can get on to the next step Mm -hmm. but in the ticking of that box there is you're playing with fire as as a sort of a torchbearer for the things that are by entering it in at all but it's a weird tension that's like we're gonna read emerson or Thoreau, or Coleridge, or Wordsworth, or Tennyson, which is the great mm-hmm. one here. Those people were weirdos. <laughs> they're weird, <laughs> right. and they're 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 very for their moments were were very strange and outseen. And 
that embedded in this conventional canonical education is a history of rebellion just sort of sitting there is a very weird thing to think it about is. how this yeah. how this happens yeah it's man it's so good yeah <laughs> it's just uh, so good let's see um i was i don't know imdb does this where i didn't i've never seen this before maybe it's been around for a while but they break down the rankings by demographic so oh, it gets 8.1 8.1 out of 10 for IMDb. So it's way okay. up there. This is a, a mm-hmm. beloved movie. It just, it just still is. And the, the, the ratings by demographic are pretty... There's not a huge um, distribution. So it's younger than 18, 18 to 29, 30 to 44, and then 44 plus, and then men and women. Okay. So those how it's breaking down. Mm-hmm. The, the lowest ranking... 7.9. So again, it's not a huge ranking, but it's lower than average ranking for men the ages of 30 to 44. So my my mm-hmm. people, thanks mm-hmm. a lot. Bad job, guys. <laughs> the highest ranking is tied, but the single most votes, um, well, there's only 8.5 is the ranking for men under the age of 18. So the, the, actually the boys, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And then women or females, 18 to 29. So like college age and just after. Mm-hmm. That makes it, that feels right to me. Oh that, yeah, that that's that is. Those are the places where this really feels like it's it, it can speak to you because you're represented as the 18 year old or under boy, and then there's something about the college. Still, women aren't allowed this sort of intellectual. I mean, Mona Lisa. We still don't see movies like this where mm-hmm. this kind of thing is presented. But anymore, women who have gone to college and then after in their early lives, I think, are ready to hear this sort of. I don't know. I, there's a version of this that Mr. Keating is just seeing live, laugh, love to them using <laughs> night romantic poetry. Yeah. And you and I personally make fun of those things. <laughs> but if you, but it, you, there's worse advice out there. That's true. Um, and so I think we're ready for live, laugh, love by the time um, we get older. And then I thought it was interesting that, um, again, it's just one percentage point, but older men like it better than younger men. Mm. So as you <laughs> become older, I wonder if it... Suck the marrow yeah. of the light of life, smell the roses, carpe diem stuff starts to kick in once yeah, your hair starts falling out. Makes sense to me that in that 30 to 44 bracket, it would be the lowest. Like that's the part of life where there's the most incentive to just yeah. toe the line and do the things and tick the boxes. And if you're once you get past that, you're old enough to maybe regret having lived your life that way or be, have the freedom of being retired or out of those expectations and, and able to explore a little bit more. That's super interesting. I think you could remake this today. If you were going to remake this, I wouldn't set it in the same place. I think, mm. you know, knowing what our current political moment is, I think this is set in a small public school mm-hmm. somewhere, rural. And maybe you have a trans kid who wants to yeah. be, you know, play wants to play Hamlet and with has, you know, whose, whose gender at birth was female, but wants mm-hmm. to play Hamlet. Um, it would work. It'd be, it would be more political, directly political than this mm-hmm. movie is. The thing by taking out of time is it doesn't speak to any particular moment, right? It's, it's yeah. a generalized discontent yeah, with conformity. Then the really nice and smart thing about them using Shakespeare, kind of in the same way that we talked about how smart it is that Station Eleven <laughs> uses Shakespeare, yes, Shakespeare, is that you can cast so many different things onto it. And mm-hmm. for these purposes, it just has to stand in as this kid wants artistic life and artistic yes. expression and freedom. And that in itself 
is a political choice, yeah. but you could certainly remake it in a in a more political bend. I was thinking about like who could pull off a Keating type character today that has that that range of like wisdom and playfulness and a little edge and that's i mean that's a tough i I don't have i thought about this i don't know where you go i have no idea where you go i i don't think any of my ideas are good (laughs) (laughs) the closest i got was like sterling k brown i think might have some of it um i really loved him on my months-long journey of watching this is us earlier this year um maybe hamish patel and maybe like uh i don't know abby jacobson would be interesting if you had a female character. is interesting. You need someone electric because the Mm -hmm. thing is there is a physical... It's not just the words Keating is saying, right? It's William's performance of it that has like a physical charge that that goes into Donald Glover? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, One of the manic versions of... Or, you know, bring him back somewhere between Atlanta and Community. Donald Glover. Mm -hmm. Get him somewhere Mm -hmm. in there. I like that one. I think that one's interesting. I, yeah, that would be. It would be hard to do. It's I mean, tough. that's that's every time I look at it, it's like the loss is just uh, of Williams. It's just unbelievably tough to do. Um, um, I did think of another English teacher. A couple other English teachers. One okay. is Paul Rudd in Your Beloved Perks of Being a Wallflower, who's very good in that movie. Oh, and right, the teacher. He's yes. Good in that. Mm-hmm. But the biggest, I think the biggest, this guy's an English teacher reveal is Tom Hanks as Captain Miller in Saving Private Ryan. I don't oh. know if you all remember that. There, We finally oh, yeah. reveals his backstory. And is he an eight, middle school English teacher? Eighth grade remember. English teacher? Something like that. And they can't believe that. Um, so maybe Captain Miller yeah. is the, the greatest of all. English, <laughs> greatest generation. <laughs> I didn't Captain land Miller. on any other important English teachers in history or in film, but I did realize for the first time watching this that my beloved sister act two <laughs> pays homage oh, to Dead really? Poets Society. How so? I think it has to. There's a scene early on. So like sister act two is Whoopi Goldberg undercover as a nun teaching music at a Catholic private school that's about to go out of business in LA. And uh-huh. She's walking through the halls and you get flashes into the different classrooms. And one of them is one of the um, friars, I think, doing like the doing the rep- the like repetitive Latin conjugations, <laughs> you know, mm. like which is we you get a scene of that. And then it's like a flash into another classroom and everybody looks half asleep and a flash into another classroom and everybody looks half asleep. And then she walks into her classroom where the kids are all kind of going wild and like <laughs> scrapes her nails down the chalkboard and gets their attention. And when they when those scenes played out at the beginning of Dead Poets, of like you see the Latin classroom, you see a couple other ones, everybody is just like dead behind the eyes. And then Keating walks through whistling and it's like, well, come on. <laughs> and they all go, I was like, oh my God, this is happening. Sister Mary Clarence is a Keating's homage. That's amazing. <laughs> I've um, never been happier to, I don't know, maybe make up a connection, but I don't think it could be accidental. I, yeah, I don't think so. It's such a totemic performance, especially especially for, you know, that would have been close enough to the movie. And when Robin was yeah, still and she that, gives maybe. Lauren Hill's character a copy of Letters to a Young Poet, and it's like, if you wake up in the morning and the first thing you can think about is singing, and the last thing you think about at night is singing, then you're meant to be a singer. Stand up to your 
your mother who doesn't want you to be a singer like is sister act 2 actually just a remake of dead poets society and, and instead of an academic monastery an actual monastery or an abbey yeah an I actual guess, monastery like, yeah. and they're doing vocal performance instead of poetry yeah. but like in this ted talk i will <laughs> <laughs> um i tell you as an older person this the detail that has stuck with me and i'm no longer a teacher but in in the way that it was important to me like I wanted to be a cool teacher. I wanted to mean something to my students. I wanted to do a good job. Like, I didn't want to just be a functionary, nor did I want to be a a slack off. And what I found in teaching, at least for me, and maybe there's other people that do it differently, is that there's always going to be a few students. In a good class, there will be one or two. And in a tough Mm -hmm. class, there'll be more than that. That just, you can't, they don't get you. You don't get them. They don't don't pick up what you're throwing down for, for whatever reason. And one time I was, I used to watch it every fall as I was getting ready for teaching as inspiration, but also as a ritual and also just to see all the birds that fly away. There's so many bird <laughs> shots of birds flying away. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, what is birds that? are getting scared all the time um, going on around there. <laughs> a lot of geese. But at this, this, this climatic sequence and maybe the great scene of educational appreciation in all of film, maybe of all of sort of popular culture, when the boys stand on the desk, mm-hmm. like a third of them don't stand up. Yeah. They just sit and they're ha- yeah, and they're like hanging their heads. They're yeah. not proud that they're sitting, but they can't make themselves conform and get they don't, up there. They can't. They can't either proudly say they don't care or they do care. But a meaningful number of them just even Mr. Mm-hmm. Keating couldn't get the whole class. I did find. Yeah. I did find some. That's humbling. It's humbling. <laughs> yeah. It's humbling. So or like let yourself off the hook a little bit. Right. If, uh, a couple of you. A couple of your students in your thirty-person seminar were like, eh. I'm not so sure with this guy. Right. Um, so there you go. That that was that was the. It, I never would have guessed that that would have been the uh, the soul nourishing moment for me when I watched this at 17. Was to notice how even Mr. Keating can't get the whole class's attention mm-hmm. um, at the end. So, all right, Rebecca. Oh, well, that's what a good hour. one. It's yep. you know it's it's fun. It's wonderful. Other non adaptation movies that we have on our docket. Did we ever do a You've Got Mail? We did a lot. That's still on the list someday. I think that's up there. Is it more bookish than this? I don't think so, actually. I don't think so. There's not that much actual literature in that. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's just actually not that much. Um, I'm trying to think. I think we can make a case now for doing Bull Durham and just quoting a bunch of transcendentalists while we do it. (laughs) I think. For for a movie that's not actually about teaching or writing, that's mm-hmm. the most bookish one I can think of. Yeah. Um, anyway, full term. Um, I did, my dad um, read the book and loved it. Oh, perfect. There you go. Yeah, right. if you're listening and you have ideas, let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com. Dead Poet Society. Peter Weir, who also directed Your Boy's Master and Commander. I don't know if you noticed mm, that. Yes, yeah. Good career on that one. Yeah, nice one. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Fun as always. Thank you.